This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolonor Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. Welcome to Pupil Pod, where we use clinical cases to guide discussions on board review topics. I'm your host, Scylla Ball, and my guest today is Dr. Netta Shami. Dr. Shami is a cataract, cornea, and refractive surgeon based out of Los Angeles, California, and I am so excited to have her on the podcast today. Dr. Shami, thank you again for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I wish I had access to something like this when I was at your stage, but I'm really delighted to be here. And Scylla, you are really such an incredible colleague. I look forward to seeing your career evolve and, and grow and uh, so excited to know you. Thank you so much. You already know how I feel about you and your mentorship. So thank you again for joining me. Let's get right into it. This case is of a 68-year-old man with no past ocular history who is referred to your clinic from optometry for cataract surgery. On examination, his best corrected visual acuity is 2050 with a decrease to 2200 OU on glare testing. He has bilateral three plus nuclear sclerosis and you determine that he is a good candidate for cataract surgery. When you discuss lens options, he states that it is very important for him to have good intermediate and distance vision. Now, Dr. Shami, before we get into the details of lens options for this specific patient, could you please give us a brief review of the Helmholtz theory of accommodation? Yes, of course. And, you know, I have to admit that this is something that you stop thinking of when you're actually in clinical practice, but you yeah, absolutely need to understand, like much of what you need to know uh, for the boards and for the <laughs> caps and such. But having said that, thankfully, I still remember. Um, uh, so basically, the theory of accommodation, there's multiple different theories, but probably the most popular is the Helmholtz. And that is that during accommodation, the uh, ciliary muscles contract and cause relaxation of the zonular fibers, which then um, uh, essentially changes the uh, lens curvature, the anterior and posterior lens curvature in a, in a healthy and, and younger lens. And by doing that, uh, the power of the lens then increases. And so you can by accommodating, it means you can uh, have your focus go from distance to mid-range to near, really in a very fluid fashion in a young eye. So the reduced zonular tension allows the elastic capsule of a lens that's, again, gelatinous and young to contract and, and, and increase its, um, its curvature. When we get older, uh, and I'm, I'm going through this right now with presbyopia, I have to tell you, it's like, it's a rude awakening of, of getting, getting older. Uh, the sonules of my lens, uh, when they relax, the lens does not change its shape the same way it did two, three years ago. And uh, 
And what happens is that then the focus, uh, no matter what your baseline focus is, there's no shift to near or mid-range. And so the lens has lost its pliability uh, and that is what's called presbyopia. There's other theories too, but again, this is the main one. Thank you. I think that was a wonderful review, having not thought about the physiology of lens annuals in quite some time. So are there any accommodating intraocular lenses? Yeah, I mean, the most popular um, has been uh, the crystal lens, uh, which has a, basically a flexible hinge at the haptic optic juncture. And uh, what happens is, uh, theoretically, when there is that contraction of the ciliary muscles, it causes the, the lens to then um, uh, change in position in an anteroposterior fashion. So there's movement of the optic of the lens uh, more anteriorly, which then increases its power. Um, and, and as a result can give you more of a reading vision. Now I say theoretically, because there's a lot of ifs and about that. And, 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 you know, initially when it was developed, it was really exciting and, and, and a wonderful option, but there's a lot of limitations to it. And in my practice, I've, I, I would say it works um, unpredictably because uh, the sizing of that lens in an eye, uh, you know, white to white distance can affect how much movement there is, contraction of the capsule around it, fusion of the capsule around the, those uh, hinges. If the, if the hinge is not positioned the right way in the, in the capsule, there's a lot of um, kind of details around making that work. So yes, the answer is yes, there are accommodating interacted lenses, the crystal lens being the most popular or the, the one that's available, at least in the US, um, but it's not as predictable as we'd like it to be. There's some more in the pipeline and who knows, maybe in the future, there'll be ones that are much more predictable. Can you help explain the difference between monovision and mini monovision, and then kind of walk us through how you determine which patients are good candidates for monovision, and then how you have those discussions with patients before they go to surgery to determine who's a good candidate? This is a great question. So monovision is essentially having the your dominant eye. We uh, most of us have a dominant eye, and by dominant eye means that we preferentially use that eye without really knowing that we're doing that for distance. And back when cameras didn't have a digital screen, it was easy to kind of determine uh, based on, okay, which eye do you hold the camera in front of when you're taking a picture? This is old style cameras that had a peephole through them. Uh, and, and typically that patients would say, you know, right or left, and that tend, tended to be the more dominant uh, eye that the patient had. There's other ways of checking which eye is dominant. So the dominant eye is then focused at distance for monovision and the non-dominant eye uh, would be focused at near or mid-range depending on where the patient's preference is. So monovision tends to be a difference in power. So plano for the dominant eye, focus at the distance and the non-dominant would be somewhere between minus 125 to about minus 250. And that all depends on Again, patient's preference. If a patient is tall with long arms, it would be on a lower end of that uh, range. If they are shorter with shorter arms, they, they're holding things closer to their eyes. So it would be uh, uh, you know, closer to the 250, but it also has a lot to do with how much difference or anisometropia that patient can tolerate. Some people who are lucky enough are 
you know, born this way, if they have natural monovision, then it's, uh, you know, they can tolerate a lot more anisometropia. But if you're creating it artificially, it needs to have been tested when the patient has had good vision. Um, so in a cataract patient, such as the one we're talking about, it's really tough to really uh, discuss monovision with them when they have such uh, uh, decreased vision due to cataracts. Uh, so ideally, you would want to have a patient who comes in with a history of monovision, possibly with contact lenses in the past, uh, before you then recommend it with cataract. You also mentioned mini-mono. So mini-mono, again, is the same concept, except uh, the near or the non-dominant eye is more um, uh, kind of targeted at the mid-range. So minus, it could be anywhere uh, between target of minus 75 even to minus 125 um, to capture more of the intermediate zone or the computer distance. Now, monovision can affect depth perception and stereopsis. So patients need to understand that. Um, and again, if it was a natural monovision, uh, in those rare cases where uh, they were born that way, or in some cases, if there's anti, uh, kind of an uh, asymmetric cataract that develops and a nuclear cataract de develops in their non-dominant eye, causing a very slow myopic shift in their refractive error be before the vision gets um, significantly deteriorated as a result of the cataract, they can get accustomed to that kind of uh, increased monovision uh, refractive status. That's kind of the general idea. Monovision, discussion around monovision is difficult. It's um, unless, again, the patient had tried it uh, as a, a contact lens user. And that's not uncommon that patients nowadays, especially with optometrists, um, really focusing on, on giving patients what they're demanding, which is spectacle independence and so many Patients now in their 40s are working on uh, the computer. They're really demanding having that kind of spectacle independence. And optometrists are working with patients with monovision contacts. That's extremely helpful. And this patient obviously never had monovision and didn't really have experience with whether or not this would affect his depth percep perception. So he was particularly interested in multifocal lenses over monovision. What is the difference between multifocal IOLs and extended depth of focus IOLs? Do you use both types of lenses in your practice? Do you find that some people favor one over the other? Great question. And it actually a discussion that I have with, you know, senior surgeons. So this is not only relevant uh, to, you know, your stage and what you're doing, but I have to tell you, this is a very hot topic for all of us because it's constantly evolving. There's so many wonderful options for patients and being able to match make patients to the right lens and anticipate their success is one of the challenges and kind of art of medicine that I think with experience, I've become more and more comfortable doing. So there's two major types of multiple multifocal eye wells, the zonal refractive and the apodized diffractive. So zonal refractive lenses use kind of a change in refractive power uh, from the center of the lens to the periphery to provide the, the distance and near correction. And zonal refractive are more dependent on pupil size than diffractive. Uh, I'm sorry, zonal refractive lenses are more dependent on pupil size than diffractive lenses are. And it's understandable because again, 
as mentioned, the zonal refractive, the different areas on the lens have different refractive powers. So if the pupil is blocking the peripheral um, part of the uh, IOL, then those refractive powers that are represented in the periphery of the lens will not be uh, utilized. Now, a diffractive lens uses a series of concentric rings to form a diffraction grating, uh, and that creates two separate focal points for distance and near. It's very complicated, so much so that please don't ask me to explain that anymore <laughs> clearly, except to say that there's a lot of resources to go to. And essentially what this does is I guess the, the, the best way for me to describe this, um, and I use this description for my patients, is that diffract the multifocal lenses uh, with the diffractive lens technology, they split the light and make it such that there are two focal points um, uh, of focus. And when you're looking at near objects, um, as well as distance options, without you knowing that there's two separate focal points, you can have a focus at the different uh, distances. Now, the, the multifocal lenses, the previous generation, and they're still obviously available to us, there's mostly were bifocal, essentially. So there would be like different ad powers so that there would be a lens with a higher ad power uh, to it. And that you would use in someone who wants great distance vision and also really good near vision, but it would kind of have some weakness in the intermediate and mid range. There is ones with lower ad power that would be more for someone who uh, wants to be able to work on a computer and, and then have great distance. And we would sometimes do mix and match. And this is again, where kind of the art of being able to match make patients to the right lens would come into play. With the current technology multifocal lenses, the trifocal lenses, um, two of which I, I use in my practice. So the two, um, the two trifocal lenses that I use in my practice are the Synergy and the Panoptics are the two that have been approved in the U.S. and trifocal lenses, which kind of takes away that complicated discussion around mix and matching and, you know, which distance do you prefer, middle or, or near uh, or distance. That The trifocal, like the name says, essentially gives you excellent reading uh, uh, mid-range, which is computer, dashboard, and distance. And, and, and that's essentially the multifocals that in my practice work really well. As far as the extended depth of focus lens, um, the Symphony was the first of its kind. Uh, and essentially what that, the extended depth of focus lens, it's a new category, was a new category with the Symphony lens. What that lens does, it stretches the kind of the, the um, defocus curve of, uh, of a lens and the, and the distance at which it has, utilizes the most amount of light and does the focus. An extended depth of focus lens, lenses tend to have better nighttime um, um, uh, kind of visual, visual aberration profile and more of a fluid focus where you don't have to search for that right sweet spot for your vision, at least theoretically. Um, for many patients, those work quite well, but some don't. And that's, again, where the challenge is. There's now also the Vividi, which is a, uh, in that extended kind of depth of focus type category of lens, which, again, it stretches the, the defocus curve, which stretches the focal point of, the, of, of your vision so that you have excellent distance and mid-range. So from distance all the way to computer. Um, did I answer your question there? 
Yes, absolutely. I'm even learning so much right now because these are complex topics and each lens has its nuances. So this is really wonderful to go through all the different types. So moving on to the next question, how do you choose the best patients for multifocal lenses? Are there certain conditions that make a patient a poor candidate or patients that you would exclude from considering a multifocal lens? Well, this is the million dollar question then. <laughs> we're going to try to cover it really quickly here. There's a huge challenge about this, as you said, as, as we were talking about. I mean, this is probably the, the, one of the more complex topics in, among cataract surgeons. How do you choose the best patient for each type of advanced lens technology we have? I tell you, when I was a resident, we only had monofocal lenses and it was so easy. The, the chair time was minutes. Um, and it didn't really take much time to have that discussion around patient lifestyle, what their needs are. And also the patients didn't have those demands that patients now do have. Um, now, was it easier? It was easier back then. It wasn't as fun. It's a lot more fun now trying to uh, do our best to not only improve patients' vision, but also improve their um, lifestyle and, and optimize their lifestyle and their visual um, abilities. So what it requires is for you to develop a, a, a kind of a real understanding of who that patient is in the short bit of time that you have doing that consult. And much of that comes from your training your technicians in getting a really nice history. Uh, what does the patient do? For me, the vocation is really important. If I have a patient who's a photographer who is, uh, you know, a pilot, uh, who is an engineer, uh, the discussion is very different than someone who um, doesn't drive because they have other disabilities. Um, so, you know, again, this can take out, this could be an hour long discussion around how do we find that matchmaking uh, potential. I, I joke to my patients and I say, you know, look at me as a matchmaker. I'm going to matchmake you with the right lens. Um, so the comprehensive discussion is really important about what the patient's day-to-day -day life. So I, what I usually ask the patient, the question that has helped me a lot is tell me how you use your eyes. And it's important to understand, do they, is it, is this someone who gets up in the morning and from the minute they're up, they're putting on their glasses until the minute they go to sleep, or are they, are they the kind of a low myope, the minus two, a myope who doesn't put on glasses until they leave the house. Um, that's a whole different discussion and whole different type of patient than someone who absolutely demands excellent distant vision and doesn't mind wearing reading glasses, for example, or someone who is coming in with cataracts, bitterly complaining about their decreased vision and glare at night, but you look at their eyes and you manifest them and they're 20-20 minus, like they miss one letter on the 20-20 line, and you look at their cataract and it's mild and they're complaining of glare and halos and there's no other reason, you know, no dry eyes and nothing else. That is not a patient I would recommend a multifocal in because, and I explain it to them. I tell them, you know, look at how you are bothered by your 2020 cataract. I can bet you that you will not enjoy the visual aberrations and the nighttime uh, rings around lights that you'll get with a multifocal lens. Um, so comprehensive discussion about the lifestyle, about what they do, what their expectations are. Is this a patient who comes in adamant about, you know, 
I don't want to wear glasses and it'll be a failure if I have to wear reading glasses um, or it'd be a failure. You know, what's doc, uh, you know, doc, what's the chances I'll have 2010, 2015 vision. You know, if this is a patient who comes in demanding 2020 vision, then you need to really sit down and give, make sure that their expectations are realistic and, um, and that you're offering them the lens that meets their demands. Um, the EDAW versus multifocal discussion. So let's talk about the classic ideal multifocal patient would be someone who has come in with less, you know, with a vision that's less than 2030 due to their cataracts. And you ask them and you look at their cataract and you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is bad cataract. How are they even reading the 2030 line? And you look at their eyes and you ask them, what brought you in? And they say, well, you know, I kind of started noticing uh, at nighttime, I'm not seeing the street signs or, you know, when I'm driving, I'm, I'm just barely noticing it. That's a patient that even if they, they have hesitation about the multifocal lens, I'm like encouraging them to dive in because obviously their, their demands on their optical system is not so precise that they're noticing that cataract at a time when someone else may you know, many of other patients would notice it. Um, it's also right, the right choice for a patient who wants to have independence from glasses as much as possible. And, you know, it's important to discuss that at night when you're driving, you may get rings around lights. Um, if you use the word glare and halos, they tend to cringe because that's sometimes often what, why they came in in the first place. Uh, their cataract was causing them glare and halos. So the word glare and halos tends to, to discourage patients in considering a multifocal lens. I mean, as you can, as you can tell, there's a lot more to it than, than just that. Now, what are, who are poor candidates for multifocal lenses? It would be a patient who has other uh, comorbidities that impact the optics of their eye. And the reason that's important is because of twofold. One is the multifocal lens, as we mentioned, splits the light. And so you are utilizing less light at the different distances of your vision. And as a result, if you know, the contrast is slightly diminished in a healthy eye, but if you have an unhealthy eye that has other comorbidities already um, jeopardizing the contrast of that eye, the contrast capabilities of that eye, such as dry eyes, that is not responsive to, to basic treatment, irregular astigmatism, macular degeneration, advanced glaucoma, corneal scarring, any of those things, it can obviously compound the problem um, uh, if you implant a multifocal lens in those eyes. Now, you know, I think, it, so and the other problem with that is that a patient who's investing in a multifocal lens, they're doing it because they wanna have independence from glasses, well, it'll be harder to deliver that promise to them if they have other comorbidities. Uh, and so in those cases, if a patient has dry eyes, for example, who responds to dry eye treatment that you initiate upon your cataract consultation, that's fine. That patient can get a multifocal lens as long as they understand that they need to maintain their ocular surface health when that lens is still in their eye. Other more permanent problems, like, like I mentioned, irregular astigmatism, uh, you know, uh, macular degeneration and such, well, you have, to, I really try to 
avoid multifocal lenses in, in those eyes. Now, the extended depth of focus lenses, on the other hand, especially the Vividi, which doesn't have uh, the concentric, uh, doesn't have as much um, uh, impact on the contrast of the vision. And it actually, in the studies, was shown to have uh, monofocal quality vision. So kind of mimics the same vision one gets with a monofocal lens. Um, those lenses can be implanted in eyes that have mild comorbidities. So mild epiretinal membrane, mild um, macular degeneration with the patient understanding that it's difficult to anticipate how much they will be able to reap the benefits of the extended depth of focus lens. But at least you can be assured that you're not going to lessen the contrast of, of their eye. So that's kind of the general gist and a very shortened version of a probably a two hour discussion. I think it was a very succinct summary. Do you um, think you could walk us through some of the surgical pearls for early practice cataract surgeons that are interested in using multifocal lenses? Is there anything that they need to be more mindful of in the OR? And then any post-operative complications? I know you mentioned glare and halos and things like that, but is there anything else that we're more careful about in these patients? Most of the pearls about for success with multifocal lens really comes in, in, in determining who's the right patient. So I think the discussion we just had is probably the most important part of success with multifocal lenses, Do, you know, making sure the ocular surface is healthy, looking at the corneal topography and corneal imaging, making sure the optics of the eye are, um, will allow for it. Um, uh, the, looking at the macula with uh, optic, you know, with OCT, I make sure you do a topography and OCT on all your premium lens patients, the patient expectations are accurate, all those things. And then the biometry, you want to make sure your biometry is as accurate as possible. And those, you know, the biometry can be impacted not only with um, the ocular surface and irregular astigmatism, but also just the formulas you use and such. So I would say working towards um, adding multifocals to your practice, you have to make sure that you understand patient selection and optimizing ocular sur surface and ocular um, uh, health of the patient, and also fine tuning your, your um, calculations and your surgical adjustment of your uh, lens power. As far as surgical uh, pearls are concerned, you know, create an incision that's peripheral and uh, has minimal impact on your astigmatism, uh, making sure that you polish the capsule. I polish the capsule on all my patients regardless, but I maybe spend a little extra time on my multifocal patients because I want to minimize the risk of PCO formation and contraction of that capsule, making sure that your capsulotomy is centered so that that lens optic stays a planar and doesn't get a tilt to it. Uh, at the end of the case, what I do is I have, uh, I change the, the, the light on my microscope to get a single light or two lights so that the patient, I ask the patient then fixate on the light and I try to center that multifocal lens, the center of the multifocal lens on their visual axis. I mean, I haven't done a study to see if that actually makes a big difference, but it does make me feel better at the end. <laughs> and, uh, and that's essentially it. And, you know, minimizing inflammation. So using any, any, any way possible, minimizing inflammation or early inflammation in that eye. 
and hitting your target as best as you can. So that formula is important and um, the surgeon adjustment is very important in those patients. And then finally, with the recent approval of a presbyopia drop, where do you think it would fit in with a cataract and refractive practice? Have you had any experience with the drop? And what are you looking forward to in the future? Yeah, I think the new presbyopia drops are really exciting. I mean, there's one that's been approved, which is um, uh, Abbey's or Allegan um, uh, Vuity, um, which is, ha- has really initially we were, as surgeons, we were wondering if it's going to have much of an impact in our practice, but there's absolutely a role in it in, in a surgeon's practice. And probably the most important, most uh, important role will be in the refractive surgical practice, which is patients coming in who had had LASIK previously, who um, are emetropes, uh, their distance vision is not impacted, but they're coming in in their early 40s, mid 40s, complaining of difficulty reading. And those are patients we really didn't have very, very good options for. And now with the presbyopia drops, there'll be a lot of opportunity. I'm sure you can do a whole podcast on that. And then in the cataract surgical practice, I think in patients who um, have multifocal lenses implanted in their eye and they may have, they're happy with their vision all around, except maybe nighttime glare and halos or nighttime uh, aberrations, the presbyopia drops may help with that. Or if they have extended depth of focus lens that doesn't give them enough reading, we anticipate that some of the presbyopia drops can be helpful in increasing the depth of focus in these patients. So time will tell. I think with more experience, we'll be able to really kind of see where the sweet spot will be for these drops. But I, I as a pre or, or early presbyope, I'm very excited about these drops. Thank you so much, Dr. Shami. So let's summarize what we learned today. Presbyopia is the normal loss of accommodation that begins to occur during middle age and is explained most commonly by the Helmholtz theory of accommodation, though there are other theories and you can read about those in our major textbooks. Non-accommodative surgical treatment for presbyopia is most common and includes things like multifocal IOLs and monovision. Monovision involves correcting the non-dominant eye to be slightly myopic, but you have to remember that in patients that you're choosing monovision, there may be a slight decrease in stereopsis. Multifocal and extended depth of focal lenses can be refractive or they can be diffractive. The decision to pursue multifocal lenses is complex, as we heard from Dr. Shami, but this is a wonderful way to optimize the visual function for our patients. Surgical considerations for patients that you choose to pursue multifocal lenses include having a peripheral incision in order to reduce astigmatism, polishing the posterior capsule in order to avoid posterior capsule opacification or capsular contraction, and trying to center the lens on the Purkinje reflexes of the light to make sure that your patient has the best visual outcomes. There are options for patients that are not quite ready for cataract surgery, but are still interested in presbyopia correction. And you should stay tuned for more on this during another episode of the Pupil Pod. Dr. Shami, before we end the episode, I ask all of my guests an icebreaker question. Now, I have asked a few of our guests this question before, but I'd love to hear your answer. If you could have dinner with anyone from any time in history or that you've known in your life, who would it be? Uh, it would be, without a doubt, Rumi, who is an ancient Persian poet whose poetry I have loved and, uh, and study and, 
and, and use for my kind of as life lessons. And I know that Sola, you two are a big Rumi fan. I really, truly am. I think that Rumi's poetry and wisdom really got me through some of the most difficult times in my life and still helped to hold that beacon of light through the darkness whenever I need it. So thank you for that answer. And thank you, Dr. Shami, for leading us through this episode of The Pupil Pod. It's my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me. And thank you to our listeners. See you next time on The Pupil Pod.